Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to today's Beeson Podcast. Well, I'm here in Atlanta at the Evangelical Theological Society. There are several thousand scholars who have gathered here for this meeting, and I have the privilege of talking to one of them who's making a presentation later uh, today. She is Dr. Stefana Dan Lang. Welcome, Stefana, to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me, Dr. George. Now, I've known you for a long time. Uh, you're one of my favorite people. Oh, you've, you've, you've taught at Beeson Divinity School a couple of times. You're a scholar. You, you did a Ph.D. and an MDiv at Southern Seminary, working with our friend Craig Blazing. Yes. You're an early church scholar. Uh, you're also married to Dr. John Lang, who teaches at Southwestern Seminary in the area of philosophy and theology. So you've got theology surrounding you all over the place. Well, John and I have some very interesting conversations. And you also have three little babies, <laughs> we right? We do, and we also have interesting conversations with them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember meeting your parents once uh, from Romania, so yes. you have some Romanian uh, heritage in your life and background? I do, actually, and since we're not too far away from Halloween, I'll say that my parents are both from the region of Romania that is Transylvania. Oh, yeah? My father is from Cluj, and my mother is from a city called Arad. I see. Yes, right. Is that the same as Aradia? No. Is it? Uh, Oradia is a little bit uh, to the north of Arad. Today, we want to focus on some of your research. That You've done some very interesting, exciting research in the early church, particularly in Eastern Christianity. Uh, we in the West have a prejudice, I think, toward the Western stuff. You know, yes. uh, Augustine, Tertullian, Cyprian. But we're going to talk today about some figures that you've worked with in the Eastern part of the early church. Uh, from the area of Syria. Now, Syria is in the news today. We know a lot about the political and, and very severe human rights concerns there. Uh, but Syria is a very ancient Christian culture, isn't it? It is. It uh, is. Tell and us about how Christianity came to Syria. Well, I think it's worth uh, reminding ourselves a little bit about what, uh, what other countries are surrounding Syria, just a little bit about the geography. Um, I think that it's helpful to note that um, Syria has Jordan on the south and then Turkey on the north and then on the east it butts right up against the Euphrates River and so it has um, Iraq on the east and then um, it has a small border with uh, or a small um, shoreline on the Mediterranean and then a little to the south of that is um, Lebanon and Israel. So Christianity came to Syria very early on, um, even in the fourth century, I mean, in the first century, mm. um, even in the book of Acts. So yeah. in Acts 11, we read that um, the Christians were first called Christians in Antioch. In Antioch. Yes. And we also get some understanding of the kinds of people that are already in Syria and what cultures and what languages are being spoken there because it says in Acts that uh, they spoke with the Hellenists mm -hmm. who were there in Antioch. And so there was obviously um, a Jewish community, a Greek-speaking Jewish community, a Greek-speaking um, pagan community. Uh, and so it was quite an interesting mix in Antioch of um, believers, new believers, unbelievers, and Jews. 
And so we have multiple languages that are going on in Syria as well. And um, some of this also facilitated the spread of Christianity. Before I get into the spread of Christianity, though, and some of the linguistic um, infrastructure that was there to facilitate that, I think it's also worth noting a couple of the important cities that were at that time um, part of Syria or part of Persia. And um, these are a couple of cities that are very important for Syriac Christianity. So Antioch, of course, which is close to the border with the Mediterranean. And then as you go east along the um, Syrian and Turkey, Turkish border, we have the city of Edessa, which today mm-hmm. is called Orfa mm-hmm. or Shanli Orfa. And that was quite a center of uh, Christian scholarship. And then even further east of that is the city, the ancient city of Nisibis. Which and that's has very been, near the Turkish border, right? It is. It is actually the Turkish border dips down a little bit into Syria to incorporate Nisibis, <laughs> which I'm very happy about. Yeah. <laughs> but then these cities then are along the trade route that we call the Silk Road. And so Christianity was able to spread to the far east through these cities and to all points all east. All the way to China. That's eventually. right. Yeah, That's right. Absolutely. Now, what would you say are some of the chief characteristics of Syriac Christianity? What makes it distinctive in a way? Syriac Christianity started out uh, in large measure as Greek classical Christianity. There already was, as I mentioned just before, a Hellenistic cultural and linguistic infrastructure there. So um, Syria was the part of Alexander's former empire, once it had fragmented, that was given over to uh, one of his generals, um, Seleucus. And so he established a dynasty there, which we call the Seleucid dynasty. And so it was Greek-speaking, it was Aramaic-speaking. Part of what developed there was kind of along the lines of what we might be a little more familiar with um, from from Greece and from Turkey. Um, So Eastern Christianity largely was Greek Christianity. Mm. Um, Later, after the Council of Chalcedon, I think Syriac Christianity took on some of the features that are a little more foreign to us um, and not quite as accessible, I think, for for Western Christians uh, or those who are familiar with the decisions of the um, ecumenical church councils. Yeah. Chalcedon, of course, was 451, and it was a Christological debate Yes, uh, that really uh, both established a kind of orthodoxy but also precipitated division. It did. Uh, within the Eastern, particularly the Eastern churches. It did. Uh, Things fragmented right after that, and um, the churches were divided into probably three or so different uh, groups. And so when Islam came onto the scene in the 7th century, it kind of made it easier for um, Islam to become dominant there because the churches were divided, unfortunately. Yeah. I want to go back to that earlier period and talk about a particular figure that you've written about and studied deeply. A person, I have to say, is not too very well known in the West, but ought to be better known. I agree. And you can tell us about him. Theodoret of Cyrus. Who was he and why did you write about him on your dissertation? Yes, well, Theodoret was a, um, a bishop in a city that is sometimes called Cyrus, sometimes called Cyrus. It has a couple of different spellings. He was born at Antioch around 393 to Christian parents, and he was nurtured in Christian teaching and devotion from birth. It's not an exaggeration to say from birth. So he grew up in a Christian family. He did. Absolutely, he did. Um, His mother was very pious and 
some of her pious practices included visiting um, holy men who lived uh, either on the edge of the town or um, not too far away from Antioch, and she would minister to them. She would take them sometimes uh, things to eat or sometimes a cloak or something like that, and uh, she received their blessing. And Whenever she had some kind of difficulty, uh, like she had an eye disease at one point, and she went out and asked for healing or asked for prayer. Mm. Um, well, eventually, after about seven years of marriage and no children, she went out and asked for prayer to conceive. And um, as a result of that, um, Theodoret was born. Uh, the reason that I chose Theodoret to write about really um, began as I was looking at patristic exegesis and um, particularly studying the Psalms. Theodoret is a very interesting interpreter because while he is in Antioch, which is renowned for a particular kind of biblical interpretation that is um, historical and literal in its focus on the text, as opposed to an Alexandrian kind of um, interpretation, which tends to be more spiritual and allegorical, Theodoret very conscientiously walks a middle line between those two. Mm. And you can see this in his comments at the beginning of the Psalms commentary. He admits, he, he knows what's going on in Alexandrian exegesis. He knows what's going on in Antiochian exegesis. And sometimes that was too literal. Mm. And he made it very clear that the right path to go on was in between those two, to be faithful to the text, not to go overboard and not to deprive the text of its messianic meaning. So he's a younger contemporary of Augustine, living in this time of uh, really doctrinal formation in some ways, and he was involved in some of those Christological debates, wasn't he? He was, and he he had been quietly doing the work of a bishop in Cyrus, which is about 40 miles from uh, Antioch, uh, east of Antioch, since about 423. When the Council of Ephesus is called uh, in 430, and then it happens. It, they actually meet in 431. I think that's when Theodore really kind of comes onto the ecumenical stage. And between 431 and the Council of Chalcedon in 451, everything that Theodore had been writing up to that point on, um, on Christology or in apologetics uh, really bears fruit. Um, his theological studies, his theological acumen, bears fruit at this point. Um, Theodoret comes to the notice of Cyril of Alexandria, who is one of the major protagonists mm. at Ephesus. And um, it's very, it's a little bit amusing to me to read Cyril's, um, how Theodoret kind of came onto Cyril's radar. Mm. Um, Cyril had written some anathemas against what Nestorius had been teaching, which was a particular brand of Christology that Cyril disagreed with. And Nestorius was the patriarch of Constantinople? He was, yes, until but representing the Antiochene tradition. Yes, yes. And um, Nestorius also brought in some of his own ideas that not all the Antiochenes agreed with, uh, a view of Christ that seemed to acknowledge the two natures of Christ, which was fine, but he also seemed to divide them in a way that is not according to the scripture, um, that is inconsistent with Christological doctrine as we have it biblically. So Nestorius was causing some trouble there in uh, Constantinople and um, building up kind of a base of, of enemies, actually. And Cyril was able to take advantage of this and 
um, call a council at Ephesus to deal with Nestorius, by which I mean to (laughs) condemn him and get rid of him, if Mm -hmm. at all possible. Um, Theodoret was a friend of Nestorius. Nestorius was from Antioch, and his reputation in Antioch was as a very holy man, a very learned man. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are some of the characteristics that you know, for which he was elected as um, Patriarch of Constantinople. Nestorius was not the most tactful man, however, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that did not um, stand him in good stead when he was in the big city. So Theodoret defended Nestorius up to a point. He comes onto Cyril's radar when Theodoret writes against Cyril's condemnations of Nestorius. Cyril knows something about Theodoret. He knows that Theodoret is a bishop somewhere, in a Mm. backwater somewhere. That was kind of the reputation of Cyrus. And Cyril writes to a friend of his, I I wrote back to this you know this bishop who's the bishop of somewhere or another and apparently that wasn't good enough and he wrote back to me and so now I have to really attack him. So Cyril became aware that there was a theological mind that was very astute that he had underestimated mm. in this controversy. And uh so in between uh Ephesus and Chalcedon in these 20 years um, Theodoret is writing a lot on Christology. Towards the end of those 20 years, just before the Council of Chalcedon, he comes into a period of crisis, which, um, which, which we can discuss uh, as we go along. But one of his biggest contributions was writing on Christology um, against, uh, against Cyril's view, which he saw as unhealthy Christologically, because Cyril was overemphasizing, Theodoret felt, the deity of Christ to the exclusion of the full humanity. He didn't deny the humanity of Christ, but the full humanity. The way that he talked about the deity of Christ seemed to um, undermine the humanity of Christ. And, you know, we we have our own theological disputes and controversies today, but I mean, we're talking serious argument, dispute, condemnation, anathemas going on between these two great theologians, Cyril of Alexandria and, and Theodoret of Cyrus. And Theodore really gets obscured in this controversy, I think, as far as what we talk about today, when we talk about the Christological controversies, he's sort of overshadowed by Cyril's and Nestorius's Right, they're the, discussion. the big names that we they all are. know. But now tell us the crisis you were talking about that Theodoret found himself in around the time of the Council of Chalcedon. Well, Theodoret formulated, along with John of Antioch, a formula of reunion after Ephesus. And Cyril signed that. And Cyril's constituency back in Alexandria believed that he had compromised uh, Alexandrian Christology. They were not; they were none too happy about that. Well, in 444, Cyril passes off the scene, and he is succeeded by Dioscorus, who is some kind of relation to him, either his nephew or his godson or something like that. Dioscorus is absolutely furious with Theodoret and with the Antiochenes because he feels that Cyril has been tainted by um, agreeing with them on the formula of reunion. And Dioscorus decides that he's going to call a council, and it's going to be a council that's going to condemn Theodoret and get rid of him, just as Cyril had been able to get rid of Nestorius through his machinations. Dioscorus was going to do the same about Theodoret, and Theodoret had a sense that 
Dioscorus was on the warpath against him specifically. Cyril had had friends at court in Constantinople. Um, Dioscorus did as well. And a, a council was called in Ephesus in 449. Mm. Dioscorus somehow had gotten the ear of the emperor or somebody powerful at the court, maybe not the emperor specifically, but he had gotten Theodoret condemned and put under house arrest. And Theodoret could do nothing but just sit and wait for the council to meet in 449, condemn him, exile him, get rid of him, and that would be the end of him. He left behind a corpus of letters, of, of epistles, so we call this epistolography. And a lot of these are personal letters in which he's expressing himself and his own thoughts and his own emotions in the period of this crisis, which probably lasted for about a year to a year and a half. And this gives us a window into his soul, into his spirituality. It really does. It yeah. really does. Also, in these letters, um, he put out what his uh, doctrinal views were. Um, he wants to portray himself as orthodox. Um, he writes letters to bishop friends. He writes letters to Christians who were in government. Um, you know, he's appealing for, for help, for uh, mm. somebody to kind of um, advocate for him while his hands are tied and he can do he can do really nothing. Well, what happens in the end is that the Council of Ephesus meets, and it's supposed to be recognized as the Fourth Church Council, but a couple of years later, the Council of Ephesus is completely condemned, and it's called the Robber Council. Yeah. <laughs> so at this council, Dioscorus tried to basically condemn Theodoret and his Christology and put forth a new Christology, which was a new heretical Christology mm. associated with the name of Eutyches, who had this, this melding of human and divine in Christ that kind of resulted in a third kind of creature or a sort third of the radical nature. opposite of Nestorius. It was. Absolutely it was. Yeah. It was. So um, that didn't work out so well for, uh, for Dioscorus nor for Eutyches. And um, Theodoret was saved when God's providence stepped in, mm. I think. The emperor Theodosius II was out riding his horse, maybe hunting, maybe for sport. Um, so this happened in the year 450. He fell off his horse and he broke his neck and he died shortly thereafter. His sister, Pulcheria, who was a very uh, strong imperial woman. And whose name means beautiful. Pulcheria, that's right. <laughs> that's right, it does. Well, she stepped in and she took the reins of power and she, she had been celibate up to that point and she took a husband, or in some documents he's called it a consort. Uh, she, anyway, she got married and uh, this man named Marcian, not the heretic Marcian, but Marcian. He was a retired general. And the two of them together called the Council of Chalcedon. And at the very beginning of the proceedings of this council, Theodor was brought out of house, from under house arrest. He was brought before the council, before the bishops gathered there, and uh, he was reinstated. The way in which he was reinstated was not very pleasant for him because it meant that he was to anathematize his friend Nestorius. And he asked the council, would you like to know what I believe? Would you like to know my Christology? They were uninterested, completely uninterested. <laughs> and they said, no, just anathematize Nestorius. And after a couple more attempts to explain himself, Theodoret saw he was going to make no headway whatsoever that way. And so he anathematized the teachings of Nestorius and anybody else who teaches those things. And then he was allowed to take his seat 
on the council and continue on and sit, be, was, be a, be a, was, be a he bishop. And he was. To the episcopacy. Now, he was. Uh, I want to ask you about a, an article you wrote, an essay in the Journal of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care. It was published last year. Uh, in which you deal with Theodoret in a somewhat different way. You're, you're looking at his letters. You mentioned yes. his epistolography, his, his writing of, of epistles, of letters. And in this particular one, you talk about him uh, offering pastoral care in, as a grief counselor through his letter writing. That's right. Say a little bit about that. That's fascinating. Well, there are probably 200 or maybe more letters that we have from Theodoret many of them translated into English. We have critical editions of them as well um, with the original Greek and the modern language of French. And um, Theodoret had such a huge network of friends, of bishop friends, of personal friends, aristocratic friends, probably pagan friends too, um, some people who were in the imperial service. And he's such a wonderful letter writer. We talked about the Greek culture and Greek ideas, Hellenistic culture, as uh, predominant in Syria uh, up to up to about the fifth century, sixth century. And Theodoret is nothing if not a classical writer. When he writes letters, he writes according to classical form. A lot of his letters are very brief. This is his style, brevity, very unlike Jerome, for example. Mm -hmm. He's prolix. <laughs> very much so, <laughs> but also a classical writer. So uh, Theodoret's letters may be, you know, the first part, the greeting of a letter might be one line or two lines. And then, you know, he gets to the body and it's just, you know, several lines. And then, you know, always, uh, and I hope you're well and well wishing at the end and maybe some kind of a classical reference or classical illusion. Um, but he's, it's wonderful to read his letters. The letters of consolation do not form a large percentage of the entire corpus of his letters. There are probably um, a little less than 20 of those. But consolatio was a classical letter-writing genre. Mm. And Theodoret employs this with a number of friends of his, some bishops, some laypersons, and... I was very impressed at how this very, very busy bishop took time to write to people who were bereaved. In his diocese, there were 800 churches. He was responsible for 800 churches in Cirrus, and he still found time to write letters of consolation that weren't just a Hallmark card with a few lines. Can you tell us about the letter he wrote to Alexandra? She was a widow. She'd lost her husband, and he's offering a consolation, a counsel to her. Yes, this is a very interesting letter by Theodoret because it's one of his longer letters. Other long letters had to do with doctrine. This letter has to do with comfort. And um, it's, it's a letter that is very typical of Theodoret's consolation letters. Um, and it also shows the um, special characteristics that uh, Theodoret is, is known for. Um, he has this dual strategy of consolation, and this is uh, kind of the main point of the article that I wrote. This dual consolation strategy involves talking about reason, um, which kind of represents um, just sort of a human, worldly understanding of, of life and death and how things go, the human condition, um, that death is something to be expected, 
like it's no surprise from the time that we're born. And the other aspect is a focus on resurrection, a very robust theological focus. And when I compared the letters of consolation by Theodoret with, for example, Jerome or, for example, the Cappadocians, um, uh, Gregory of Nazianzen or, or Basil, they have letters of consolation as well. There is not a focus on resurrection. They have a little bit different focus, not to say that they don't have a Christian focus, but they're focused kind of on classical allusions mm-hmm. and and things like that. Um, Theodore is very focused on the hope of resurrection. This is what gives us hope in our sorrow. It's the knowledge that we will um, see one another again, the knowledge that that person actually is not dead, dead, that person is alive in God. One of the things he says to Alexandra is, um, let's, let's not imagine him as a corpse. I mean, you know, if you think pastorally, the last time she saw him, he was a corpse and then he went into the ground. That's her last sighting of him. Mm. And he says, let's not imagine him as just a corpse to wail over as if we have no hope. Let's imagine him as being gone on a long journey as he often you know, was gone for business. He's gone on a long journey and he's arrived home and we wish him well there. And, you know, he's implying and we will be able to join him because of the resurrection. We'll be able to join him um, when when it's our time. Another letter um, whose recipient escapes me right now, another letter that he wrote, but it's mentioned in the article, was to a woman who was a widow, and it was during, I believe, the season of Lent. And she was going to church and probably involved in Lenten um, celebrations, devotions, and she was very much depressed. Well, um, it's a holiday as the holidays are coming up right now. Uh, she's bereaved. She's thinking about the death of Jesus and the death of her own spouse at the same time. And Theodoret, in a very tender way, I feel, reaches out to her and kind of gives her this pastoral theological comfort. He turns the things that are probably depressing her into something that can be um, uplifting and theologically deep. And so he talks about the sufferings of Jesus, that those sufferings are what um, constitute our salvation, that those sufferings were undergone for the very purpose of giving us hope, yeah. you know, so leading to the resurrection. There's and an so eschatological focus to but he's giving her a hope for the absolutely. future. Yeah. Absolutely. It's wonderful. This article that you wrote is called Resurrection and Reason, A Patristic Consolation of the Bereaved, published in the Journal of Spiritual Formation and Soul Care. And if you'd like to read this article, you can go to the Beeson website and look under From the Dean, where I recommend articles, and you'll find uh, Dr. Lang's article there. Now, we're almost out of time, uh, Stefana, but I want you to say a little bit as we close about this kind of the monastic background. And if someone wants to know more about Theodoret of Syros, how would they find out about him? Well, Theodoret wrote um, a number of works that are uh, accessible. He wrote a lot of commentaries. There are a lot of homilies that are translated. One of my dear friends who's a um, Catholic scholar who passed away recently, Robert Hill, is 
has published more posthumously than I have published in my entire <laughs> life. But translations that he had been making before his death um, are still coming out of Theodoret's works. One work in particular that I think is very interesting and that gives us insight into um, Theodoret's milieu and also into his upbringing in this whole context of Syriac Christianity is called The Religious History, or sometimes called A History of the Monks of Syria. And um, in this, he gives us... Uh, short portraits of a number of the holy men and the ascetics that were living in Syria, um, some of them in his lifetime and some of them before his life. But some of them he was personally acquainted with. Like, for example, he talks about Peter the Galatian, who lived just at the edge of Antioch, whom his mother had visited a lot. And Theodoret says that um, Peter uh, blessed him once a week. His mother would send him out to be blessed by Peter once a week. And he said the, this holy man um, kept him on his lap and fed him grapes and bread with his own hand. So just a very delightful story. I also want to say, though, to our um, to our listening audience, that sometimes um, Protestants are not quite so enthusiastic about monastic literature. Uh, it sometimes concerns um, men and women too, who are um, doing things that we might find quite off-putting, uh, not eating, not clothing themselves, living out in the open. Um, and things that we might say, well, what does that have to do with the gospel? I would just say that we might be reminded of the prophets Elijah and Elisha, who also were out in the desert, who also were very um, recognizably holy men. And um, in the books of Kings, First and Second mm -hmm. Kings, as it has uh, narratives of what is going on at court and what's going on in the city, either Samaria or Jerusalem, um, respectively, it switches to another narrative, kind of a parallel narrative in the desert of the prophets and the sons of the prophets. I like to think of these sons of the prophets as men who are going out for a kind of a seminary education mm -hmm. out to Elijah or Elisha. I mean, they have disciples. So it's not a concept that is so foreign. And John the Baptist, you know, who lived in Absolutely. the wilderness. Absolutely. That's another one. And that's another one. And uh, I would like to say also that this kind of literature is not, strictly speaking, history. It's called hagiography, from hagios, which means holy, or um, mm -hmm. also it's the word for saint. Mm -hmm. And so these are biographies of holy men and holy women, and their intent is to instruct, to provide a model of holiness. It's something to aspire to. So some of the things that these men and women do are possible for us to emulate, like their prayer life, their devotion mm. to Jesus, their desire to obey the calling that they hear from the Lord. And some of them are impossible for us to do, like we cannot go and live on top of a pillar. I would not even want to, <laughs> like Simeon the Stylite, yes. who is included One in the, this the book people, yeah. from Theodoret. That's right. We're talking about a book called A History of the Monks of Syria by Theodoret of Syros. It's been translated in a nice English edition by Cistercian Publications. So yes. you can get this and read it and know even more about this wonderful character that you've brought back to life for us today on the Beeson Podcast, Theodoret of Cirrus. Now, my guest has been Dr. Stefana Dan Lang. She is a wife. She's a mom. She is a wonderful scholar and teacher and woman of faith. And she's taught for us at Beeson Divinity School. We'd love to have you back sometime. Thank you. Uh, she lives with her husband, John, in Houston, Texas. Thank you so much, Devana, for this conversation. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it.
You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.